This is hell. I did something yesterday that I have never done before in my life. I moved to Chicago in 1987. I voted in every mayoral election since then. And Dan, for the first time ever, I actually voted for somebody for mayor who won. Feels good to back a winner, right? <laughs> have Everything's you... coming up Millhouse this morning. <laughs> this is wonderful. It's, I mean, I don't, my expectations are not that great. No, I mean, but we avoided a real train wreck. Yes, so we did. We did avoid, we actually avoided a train wreck. If Paul Vallis could sl- smash a train into public education, he would figure out a way to do it. Oh, very definitely. So, yeah, can't believe it. I actually voted for, I missed the Harold Washington era. I would have voted for him. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, yeah. I want you to send me that um, video, that documentary, Punch Nine for Harold Washington. Yeah, have you watched that? No, I don't think it's out yet, but you, you got an advanced copy. Send it my way. Yeah, I, I think that that might be on Vimeo now, but let, oh, me, okay. let, me, let me check, though. Cool. Uh, but, yeah, Punch Nine for Harold Washington is a great documentary by Joe Winston. Uh, he was on last year to talk about it. Was it earlier this year? I can't even it was remember. earlier this year. Was it? Yeah, I can't, can't I even remember. <laughs> There's issues going on with my brain. So, uh, yeah, feels kind of good to actually back a winner, even though I'm not necessarily 100% behind the winner I backed. So there's that thing to consider. Another end of the world is possible. This is hell. But back in 2020, during the early months of the pandemic, less than two months since the first case of COVID-19 was discovered in the United States, less than one month after public health agencies were recommending people socially distance and when in public spaces wear a mask. And it was the end of the world for those who willfully, even proudly ignored the health and safety guidelines. But not only that, many came to their world's end while denying the very existence of the virus, while millions were dying around them. And when a vaccine was developed, they refused to get inoculated against what they were told was a fantasy, a myth, if not a conspiracy to control our lives, not recognizing that our lives are already controlled by, you guessed it, capitalism and its massive propaganda machine that has convinced the public that machine does not exist. The end of the world came for many who, prior to the pandemic, when things were supposedly normal, lived in denial, whether it's denying climate change or that U.S. history is one of genocide, slavery, and structural inequality, reinforcing white male supremacy and privilege. They were primed to deny any truth that made them uncomfortable or that there are any negative consequences of actions that have they've taken or supported, like backing wars. They were clearly being lied into supporting. The end of the world may have happened far too soon for those who, dating back to the abnormal normalcy before the pandemic, got their news from white Christian nationalist radio talk show hosts who, not surprisingly, dominate the corporate-owned and centralized radio landscape. Mark Bernier, a talk show host from Daytona Beach who billed himself Mr. Anti-Vax, died from COVID. Conservative talk show host Bob Enyart, the pastor of the Denver Bible Church, died from COVID. Dick Farrell, a former right-wing radio host in Florida and anchor on Newsmax TV, died from COVID-19. He was known as the other Rush Limbaugh. Farrell called the vaccines bogus and railed against Dr. Anthony Fauci, whom he called a lying freak. Also dead from COVID, Phil Valentine, a Tennessee-based conservative talk radio show host who had been a vaccine skeptic until he was hospitalized from COVID-19, where he suddenly became a deathbed supporter of getting vaccinated after 
Who knows how many people died from his deadly advice? Jimmy DeYoung, a nationally syndicated Christian radio broadcaster with, who also questioned the COVID-19 vaccines, he also died from COVID. DeYoung, who was a preacher, operated Prophecy Today. And its radio program was heard on more than 1,500 stations worldwide, according to his website. Like Valentine, DeYoung was also based in Tennessee. And the real threat to Tennessee, as we all know, is not Christian nationalist talk show hosts freely disseminating dangerous and even deadly information to everyone's homes and cars on radio stations across the state 24-7. The real threat to Tennessee is drag shows that you have to know where they are, the time they start, and actually get up off your ass and go to that show while driving and being forced to listen to likely Christian nationalist radio talk show hosts because there's nothing else on the radio. That lack of any other voice but those of reactionaries on talk radio was predicted by those who opposed the Telecommunications Act of 1996. However, President Bill Clinton had religious-like faith in corporations and their campaign money as well as all the tenets of Reaganomics and neoliberalism. That's right. Things already sucked before the pandemic. That nightmare back then was not normal. And the fact it was tolerated is an indictment against all of us. The world was already a freaking mess before a pandemic. Believing the pre-pandemic era was normal, and it's something we should return to, is the same misguided belief held by those who insist they can make America great again. Oddly, when asked, and they never are, Make America Great Again supporters disagree exactly when America was great. And I don't think any reporter has ever asked a MAGA supporter if they can give a date or year or even a decade when America was great. How bad were things before COVID-19? That's what we are revisiting today during our third and final episode of our series, This Is Hell, The Lost Pandemic Tapes, Volume 2, a handpicked selection of conversations never before, to air, never before aired on our radio station, our home station, Chicago Sound Experiment, WNUR 89.3 FM. The discussions we are featuring date from the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic back in 2020 when the university was on lockdown and we could not get to the station, so nothing was being played. Today, we are playing an interview from April 15th, 2020, with Malcolm Harris, who was on at the time to talk about his then-just-published book. Oh, I just hate doing this. S is effed up and BS. History since the end of history. Malcolm has uh, had already been on the show in 2017 when we discussed another of his books, Kid, Kids These Days, Human Capital and the Making of Millennials. He also has a new book out, which just came out last month, and we hope to have him on very shortly to discuss it. That book's titled Palo Alto, A History of California, Capitalism, and the World. But back in April 2020, he was on because of a recently published book with a very problematic title for the FCC and thus our affiliates. That book's title again is S is F'd Up and B.S. History Since the End of History. For those keeping score at home, S is shorthand for a slang term related to fecal matter. F'd refers to a profanity concerning copulation. And B.S. is manure produced by a male cow. 
that's a thing. It is. It's a bull. Malcolm argued that since 1992, when Francis Fukuyama's Waste of Trees, The End of History and The Last Man was published, things had gotten, only gotten worse. Fukuyama arrogantly argued that over 30 years ago, we had reached the end point of mankind's ideological evolution and the universalization of Western liberal democracy as the final form of human government. A little bit pessimistic, aren't you there, Francis? Margaret Thatcher had already said there is no such thing as society and there is no alternative to Western liberal democracy, which is far from democratic. Fukuyama jumped on that iron train and agreed that the best humanity could ever become was in 19-freaking-92. Now that's short-sighted arrogance. The hubris is just seeping out of these people. And in case you haven't noticed, everything is worse than it was in 1992, including decades of a forever war that attempted to forcefully universalize that Western democracy that Fukuyama thought was the end of human development. So here is how I introduced our interview with Malcolm Harris back on April 15th, 2020. All of the really smart people in the early 90s were insisting that it was the end of history, that Western capitalist democracy had won the Cold War, and from there on out, there would be no significant changes in the way we lead our lives, run our economy, or our government, or even view the world. But for that time, supposedly being as good as it was and whatever was ever going to get, things were not looking all that great. Those on the left were warning about what was to come. They were concerned about climate change, which Fukuyama seemed to have no concern over, and uh, took radical, even what some might call violent, action to raise awareness of whatever impending doom that awaited us with global warming. Following 9-11, the left was dismissed again as it warned of the growing police and surveillance state, which created a Department of Homeland Security, that the left was certain would be turned on them and against us, all of us, and it was. It was the end of history, but history just kept happening anyways. In that world where nothing would ever change again after the early 90s, it actually did change into a place of precarity and a gig economy that was different from what anyone could have imagined back when they were telling us we were at history's end. We'll talk about how history didn't end. It just kept sucking when we speak in a few minutes with writer Malcolm Harris about his new book, S is F'd Up and B.S., History Since the His End of History. We also got to discuss a recent article that Malcolm had posted at Commune Magazine, what the COVID-19 relief bill offers as a little survival as a treat. It's time for a counterproposal, which you could find at the time at communemag.com, and I believe it's still posted there. It's a fascinating read. So if you don't get if we don't get to it during the interview, then make certain that you include Malcolm Harris's writing at communemag.com as part of your pandemic reading. That's what I was telling people back then, and I'm repeating it again because you should check out that article again. What the COVID-19 relief bill offers is a little survival as a treat. It's time for a counterproposal. Malcolm is former editor at the New Inquiry, columnist at Al Jazeera America, and writer at the uh, Pacific Standard. He's a co coordinator with the Philly Child Care Collective, and you can follow him on Twitter at Big Mean Internet. 
I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, live streaming and podcast host Chuck Mertz. Producing is Dan Hill. Dan, are you excited about going to uh, your first office hours this evening at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue? Our uh, meet and greet that's really a drinking thing. Excited about joining us for the first time? Yeah, I think it should be pretty rad. Maybe I'll have a non-alcoholic beer. Oh, look at you. It's funny that they call it a non-alcoholic beer because a non-alcoholic would never drink one. Oh, that's a good point. That's a very good point. You know what I think is a much better uh, substitute for uh, beer is I always think like really hot, spicy ginger ale. Yeah, that's good too. It's There's fantastic. All kinds of good beverages out there. There are, and you know what I've was uh, sadly rediscovered that you know uh, I don't think uh, even made in Mexico with cane sugar Coke is any good. I've you don't decided like that it? all of the Coca Cola has gotten all- worse. As things went on, I don't or know. Was it always bad. I think it always has been. I just took a break from drinking sodas, and all of a sudden uh-huh. they were just—they're just awful. You think you have this nostalgic feeling for them, like you're almost like you have an addiction for them that you desire them, you really need them. Then you try it, and you're like, "This isn't as good as I thought." They have a rock and roll sparkling water now called Liquid Death. Oh, really? So you can feel like I don't know. Have you tried it? No, I don't need that. <laughs> yeah, Lacroix is fine. That's—I was drinking Lacroix before it was a meme drink. I was like a good Midwesterner. I was drinking LaCroix way before it was cool. <laughs> but while it was still low price compared to most other seltzers. Yeah, now it's real expensive. Yeah, yeah. I would drink uh, store brand LaCroix now. Yeah, exactly. So right now, Carrie's Lounge is actually easier to find than ever as there is an art installation out front. It's a tuk-tuk painted with the images of flying eyeballs, flames, and an image of J.R. Bob Dobbs of the Church of the Subgenius. Half of his face is recognizable. The other half, it well, it's without skin, so it's just kind of his skull. So Carrie's Lounge is pretty easy to find right now. Dan, please remind us, what is this week's question from hell for our listening audience? This week's question from hell is, what kind of shock and awe tactics do you employ to get what you want? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins, as always, your choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise you want. Just go to thisishell.com and click on support, and you can see all of the stuff you can win, possibly today, if your answer to this week's question from hell is our favorite. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page. You can tweet it at us. Or you can email thisishellradio at gmail.com during today's show. But we must have your answer by the end of today's show when we are announcing this week's winner. Coming up, a conversation from the first few weeks of the COVID-19 pandemic with Malcolm Harris about how screwed up the world already was before the pandemic, how normal sucked before the virus. Dan will be sharing more of your answers to this week's question from hell. We'll also tell you what's happening on this week's Patreon podcast exclusively for subscribers at patreon.com slash this is hell. And we'll tell you what's happening next week here on the show. Staring into the abyss so you don't have to. This is hell. This is hell. We were told that by the time the early 90s rolled around, history had ended. The U.S. had won the Cold War, and that brand of democracy and capitalism would now reign supreme without any detractors, leading us to an endless future of happiness through consumption and growth. Turns out, history didn't end after all. Returning to This Is Hell, Malcolm Harris is author of Shit Is Fucked Up and Bullshit, History Since the End of History. Welcome back to This Is Hell, Malcolm. 
and thanks for having me. Malcolm was on our show back in December 2017 to talk about his then-just-published book, Kids These Days, Human Capital and the Making of Millennials. You can follow Malcolm on Twitter, at Big Mean Internet, and you can find our interview with Malcolm from 2017 at our website, thisishell.com, when you search on his name. So I'm going to ask you the really stupid media question about your book right away. Why is your book called Shit is Fucked Up and Bullshit? What is the origin of that for those who do not know? For those who don't know, this is a a protest from Occupy Wall Street, from the Zuccotti Park demonstration, from the occupation. Uh, It was brought there by a guy named uh, Mickey Smith, who's a a postal service worker, some of our our, our frontline postal service workers. Um, And he brought a sign to the occupation that said, shit is fucked up and bullshit, and it went... I mean, I guess we still talked about things going viral back then, whatever. It went viral. Uh, everyone posted this sign that just spoke to uh, the, the – really stated for the first time what had been the unstated premise of the whole occupations of, like, it wasn't just one thing that we wanted to change. It wasn't campaign finance reform we wanted. It was that the whole situation was fucked up and bullshit. Uh, so it's important to, to give Mickey his credit. It was Mickey Smith. <laughs> so uh, you mentioned uh, the you know the this this is this idea of the end of history in the early '90s, the end of history, and the last man is the 1992 book by political scientist and political economist Francis Fukuyama, which argued, and far too many people believed, we would no longer see any real changes in the way life is experienced as Western liberalism and capitalism had been victorious over communism and socialism. So we're at the end of history without any historic changes in our future when it comes to economics governance and society. Malcolm, in retrospect, looking back at not only the book, but the way in which the idea caught on, what does the end of history reveal to you about the way that the world was viewed in the early 1990s? Yeah, I mean, I think even Fukuyama has has withdrawn the, the hypothesis at this point. And this is, but this is the as someone who was born in the late 80s, you know, this was the, the world that I grew up hearing in the back of the minivan on NPR. You know, this is the, uh, a world that was unifying into one capitalist whole, right? That's what China joining the WTO meant. Uh, it meant everyone was, was proceeding steadily toward liberal capitalist democracy because all of those things were, were tied together into one uh, one bundle. If you, if you recall, uh, back then, the idea was by admitting China into the WTO, admitting China into world uh, finance organizations, that this would have a, a liberalizing effect on China as a country and its political system. That because the history tends towards liberal capitalist democracy, the more the system became integrated, the more liberal everyone would be. Well, Obviously, we haven't seen that. Instead, what we see is now the political class in the U.S. starting to admire the Chinese uh, regime's methods instead of the other way around. Right. It seems to be tending towards totalitarianism and authoritarianism instead of what they hoped for, which was liberalism. Why do you th- what do you think that reveals about global capitalism when it only tends towards, or it has trended towards totalitarianism and authoritarianism instead of towards the liberalism that the proponents of globalization and free trade had been pushing? Yeah, well, I don't want to uh, demonize China any more than the U.S. also, while we're, 
while we're talking, these are just different forms <laughs> right. that global capital has taken, right? Um, and so to, to understand that there isn't a political system necessarily that comes with capital except for bourgeois class rule, and it can, it can take and operate through a, a variety of political forms even at one time within one country uh, and does so. And so the fantasy of capitalism leads to liberal democracy, which leads to capitalism, which leads to liberal democracy, was revealed to have been a, a, a very specific historical fantasy that they very quickly forgot about, that people don't really talk about anymore. And no one makes those arguments, and no one really talks about how they were wrong to have made those arguments. They just don't talk about that anymore. Yeah, and it's a real shame. You know, you also point out how there was this idea of, uh, you know, everything always getting better. The next generation, it was going to be better off for the next generation. But that's not happening anymore. How much of an impact did everything stop getting better, that this generation uh, earns less than their parents, lead to the changes in perspective of the Occupy generation? Because I've been thinking about this a lot lately, Malcolm, and I, I think that that is the most misunderstood thing about the Occupy generation of the older generation. They don't understand what it's like to live a life where the, you know that more than likely your life is not going to be better than the previous generations. Do you think that's the most misunderstood uh, thing about the Occupy generation? I think it's definitely a part of it. Uh, this is a, it's a change in generational expectation. And like you said, this is this is a very recent change. This happens during, if you're a millennial, this happens during your lifetime, where the expectations for society totally shift from this progressive accumulation of you know goods and services that's going to happen around the world, integrating into one big, happy capitalist family. Um, to a situation now where we understand that any sort of technological development is going to lead to some people gaining and some people losing. And that's, that's changed completely. When the internet was first introduced as a like technology that was going to change our lives, it was supposed to improve everyone's life. It was a straight up improvement for everyone. We we're supposed to get, you know, better stuff, cheaper, faster, and the workers who are going to be doing it, were going to be better paid and we were all gonna to have to work less. That was the promise of technology. And again, we don't talk about that anymore. Now we understand that, well, you know, if Uber it gets introduced and it cuts the prices of cab rides for consumers, that's a good thing. And we understand that life will get much, much worse for people who drive cars for a living, but that's just like a trade-off we have to be willing to make as a society. Uh, we, we've come to understand capital as a system that's rival in that way, that some people's gain is other people's loss. And in a lot of ways, that's, that's a correct disillusioning, right? We understand the system much better now than we did back then when we thought history was over. As we were mentioning at the beginning of our conversation, the title of your book, Shit is Fucked Up and Bullshit, History Since the End of History, comes from the Occupy movement. What do you think the legacy of Occupy is, it's, it's been both criticized as a failure for not continuing and hailed as a success for, as you write, 
going a lot further than almost anyone expected. So to you, what is uh, Occupy's legacy? Because one thing I've been thinking about, Malcolm, is uh, Bernie Sanders. People are all saying that, well, at least, you know, Bernie Sanders might not have won in 2016. He might not have won in 2020. But at least he changed the conversation and brought up ideas like Medicare for all, uh, state, uh, in-state tuition being free, student loan debt forgiveness. Bernie Sanders gets credit for changing the conversation, but I remember all those things coming from Occupy. So is Bernie Sanders the legacy of Occupy? I think it's it's definitely too soon to tell. I'm not sure Bernie Sanders is a, I sure hope Bernie Sanders is not a terminal point for any sort of movement or tendency or period in the United States, because I think that would be that would be a really bad sign for how things are going to go. So I, I'm a little more hopeful than that, I suppose. But I think it is a little too soon to tell what Occupy was going to mean, what its legacy uh, will come to be understood as. Right now, we're, you know, not even a decade out, and already our political terrain has shifted so much since then. I mean, back in 2011, talking about capitalism as a system was considered kind of like silly or ridiculous, and especially before 2008, totally silly and ridiculous uh, by most people. And now, like, people are sick of how much they hear about capitalism as an explanation for everything, because it is, it is a, 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 such a common explanation these days, especially in this younger cohort, as an explanatory framework for, like, why things are happening the way they are. So I'm optimistic about what will come to understand Occupy's role to have been in that process of political development. Uh, but also Occupy was a response to, like you said, like concrete phenomena that were, that were happening that was also creating this sort of political awareness, right? This is, it was a reaction to this inequality, reaction to student debt, reaction to the increase in the rate of exploitation. Um, so those things are also creating awareness directly. Um, so yeah, too, too soon to tell, uh, I think both for, for Occupy and maybe for the Bernie campaign as well. No wonder as far as I was just going to say, no wonder our show was uh, dismissed as silly and ridiculous earlier on. Uh, no, no, go ahead. What you're saying. Exactly. Uh, from another angle, when I think about Occupy, when people ask like, Oh, what do you think the legacy of Occupy? Was it a success? Was it a failure? Was it sufficient? I think about there's this uh, interview that the, the French philosopher Gilles Deleuze gave to some interviewer where the interviewer was asking him about this, this work that he'd done with this prisoner's rights group, uh, sort of the same kind of question in the 60s about, you know, was your work sufficient? And his answer was like, well, obviously, you know, we didn't free all the prisoners. It wasn't, it, we didn't accomplish our goals. But it definitely, you know, filled all of our time. It was definitely sufficient to fill all of our time. And that's how I like to think about that as in terms of Occupy as well. Like, was it sufficient to overthrow all systems of domination throughout the world? No. Was it sufficient to fill our time? It definitely was. Like, and I don't regret that use of time. And I don't think many people do. You also write that we'll, we'll get to your uh, thoughts on the resistance in a second. I want to ask you a couple questions or a question about the media first. You write that since Trump's ascension, the resistance has become a brand name, a content category. Middle-aged suburban liberals have boosted MSNBC to record audience numbers, and they've spawned a group identity to rival the Fox News infotainment cult. 
So, Malcolm, I got a, uh, I got a gift subscription to a small town newspaper in the northern part of Michigan's Lower Peninsula. While this is anecdotal, the opinion page of the newspaper is driven by those who watch Fox News, arguing with those who watch MSNBC. What happens when discourse becomes guided by MSNBC and Fox News? It's, I think it's really elder abuse. Uh, you, you take a look at who is watching, who is spending their time watching these shows, who is absorbing their information from television, and it really tends to be older people. Uh, and they're being misled into really wacky shit a lot of the time, and certainly in terms of their focus of attention. That's where it's maybe the most deleterious is the way it focuses people's attention in the wrong place, just relentlessly, just hammers you over and over and over again. Look over there, look over there, look over there, and it's always the wrong place they're telling you to look. And that is, it's, it's hugely deleterious, I think, not only in terms of people's politics or whatever, but in terms of their ability to like absorb information, to grasp the, the content of the world, uh, to communicate with others, uh, I really my my disdain for TV news is pretty pretty deep over here. I love the idea of it being elder abuse because a lot of people want to uh, complain about Fox News to the FCC to the Federal Communications Commission to see if they can somehow affect their licensing. And when in reality, if you think about it as elder abuse, what you should be doing is going to Health and Human Services and talking to them about Fox News and MSNBC and their abusive tactics towards the elderly. So that's where we should be heading, Health and Human Services, not the FCC. You write the resistance pours over every detail of the president's internal affairs investigation, waiting for the day the cops finally throw the cuffs on Trump and his whole wicked cabal. A sizable portion of the audience is fully in earnest and is probably responding to the only call that's been addressed to them. But the money behind the performers is cynical, and the resistance is not a resistance movie, a movement. What's the cynical money behind the resistance movement? Why do you think the resistance movement is not a resistance? Yeah, I mean, well, if you look at the corporations that run, I mean, MSNBC is what, a, a collaboration between Microsoft and NBC? Uh, these are, it's a... It's a entertainment industry and we can see that now where the fail at the time i wrote that piece it's important to for listeners to understand the like good money was that trump would be like impeached and removed from office right that was the the mainstream liberal opinion was that this was a foregone conclusion that he was he was toast and what i was saying is that like not only is this not going to happen this time it's not going to happen at all and this constant delusion of, you know, we're really going to see him without his clothes, the emperor's naked, everyone's going to see it now, and you're going to laugh him out of office, has been really harmful. It's been deleterious to our, our political community because it allows people to just wait on this deus ex machina to come remove Trump from office that is absolutely never coming. And they just kept moving from one to the other. And so when impeachment failed, then it was, well, this Corona crisis is going to, everyone's going to really see how incompetent he is. I was just reading this morning that when voters see 90 seconds of one of Trump's uh, Corona press conference, his approval goes up by two points. You know, you can't just assume that it's a problem that's going to take care of itself and that you can participate by just like orienting yourself in favor of it and be like, I'm part of the resistance because I want Trump gone. It's a 
it's a distraction and a delusion, and it's cost, at this point, many lives. I'm going to get back to your book in just a second, but I just wanted, because you just mentioned uh, something that made me think of your Commune Mag article, uh, what the COVID-19 relief bill offers is a little survival, that's a treat, it's time for a counterproposal. You start with the question, why has the American response to COVID-19 been so exceptionally bad? Yesterday, we were talking to the writers and activists Remy Debs Bruno and Medway Baker, who are co-authors of the Cosmonaut Mag article, The End of the End of History, COVID-19 and 21st Century Fascism. Remy said that we make a mistake when we only see the shortcomings of the U.S. response to COVID-19 as the fault of President Trump or the Trump administration, that it's a shortcoming of our capitalist system and our, our political leadership more generally on both sides of the aisle throughout both parties, not to let Trump's poor decision-making off the hook. But Malcolm, what do we miss when we only see the poor response by the U.S. government, government to the global pandemic as Trump's fault? Yeah, I don't even see it as a uh, mistake necessarily, right? It's not that they're they're doing something wrong or the system isn't working. This is how it's supposed to function. You know, they know this stuff is coming. They know all sorts of disasters are coming, and this is how they plan to react to them. So this is we're just seeing the strategy play out. This is not uh, something going wrong. This is how this system deals with its externalities. It's creating tons and tons of disasters. This is feels pretty bad, but this is just the tip of the iceberg. And so to, to blame one person or to even to blame competence or incompetence is so, so wrong and so misleading. Uh, I think one of, the, one of the mistakes we've seen is this sort of cultural explanations for why countries have dealt with it well or badly. They're like, oh, you know, Asian people wear masks like this and Western Europeans wear masks like this. And that's why it's showing this direction in this way and this direction in that way. It's such a bad explanation for what's happening and so misleading for so many different reasons. Um, and it's not, it's not just bad politics because it's like bad to assign uh, or it's in, politically incorrect to explain things through racial stereotypes or whatever. It's bad because it's misleading. It's, it's simply incorrect. So when people say like, oh, look at these Japan numbers, they must be really good because, you know, you know how Japanese people are. It's like, no, Japan was hosting the Olympics. And so they intentionally under tested people so as to make the case that they could still host this, uh, these games, you know, uh, South Korea, oh, Koreans are like this. No, South Korea overthrew their president with street demonstrations two years ago. And so the administration feels like really responsive to public demand, right? We need to actually be educated about these responses, not just work from bad stereotypes. And I think Trump is sort of one of those bad stereotypes. And you want to have a real resistance, not just protest. Under COVID, it would seem that protests, marching in the streets, going door to door, knocking on doors, handing out leaflets, those kinds of things are going to be are now impossible and uh, you write about how uh, you know this is a resistance that's really important there's a difference between resistance and protest so does covid make protest obsolete and does it make um, does it make uh, resistance which is essentially protest when it is illegal is a crime does it make that something that is a necessity 
I think it definitely, I don't think, I wouldn't go that far. Let's, <laughs> let's say that, first of all. So we're going to have people yelling at me for saying protest is over. Uh, there's still definitely a role for protest, I think, in the world. Uh, and ways that protesters have adapted themselves to COVID. But I think it definitely changes the balance, uh, changes the equation in terms of how we're considering different tactics, right? This makes sabotage way more appealing as a tactic than street demos, right? Because it's something that can be accomplished with fewer people that relies on sort of a lower level of security and the fragility of the systems you're attacking. Well, the systems are pretty fragile right now, right? There's a lack of guard labor uh, relative to the normal situations, and we're in little tiny groups all the time uh, talking to each other. So uh, yeah, I expect it, I think it should change the way we're thinking about tactics as well as strategies, um, but maybe those are separate questions and we shouldn't confuse uh, thinking about new tactics with replacing our strategy with whatever tactics are, are at hand. Before the virus, when I would talk to people about why they don't get involved more in protest or in resistance, they'd always tell me that, you know, because of the gig economy, because of their precarity in life, they simply did not have time. Capital had controlled far too much of their time, so they didn't have time to protest. And uh, But now that we're barely living under the virus, uh, you would think that maybe now there can be more of an uprising. But... Do we even know how to resist? After 40 years of neoliberalism, how much has our ability to resist been thwarted? It's true. I think there's a, there's a real lack of knowledge about resistance strategies, resistance tactics, literally how to do that, uh, what security culture looks like when it's functional, uh, how you maintain group dynamics in these kind of situations. So it's true, we're gonna to have to relearn a lot of stuff. And I think maybe that suggests that what we think of as the left, uh, maybe the, the Bernie Sanders faction of the left, might not be where these innovations are going to come from because people are so out of practice and we're sort of used to looking under the light of strategies that we already understand, tactics that we already know how to do, rather than looking for new things and new ways to attack the situation and maybe new people are, who's going to come up with that. You quote Candace Cohn, writing of the Department of Homeland Security for International Socialist Review in 2002. The long-term goal is a modern, massive, and highly invasive electronic policing system in which government and corporate databases are merged. I want to stress again, this again, in 2002. Information gathering is extensive and speedy, and the activities, backgrounds, and beliefs of non-citizens and citizens are easily tracked. And you add, those of us who talked about fascism in America were called crazy children, and though some of us were one or the other, and some of us were both, if anything, our verifiable predictions turned out to be conservative, which reminds me of climate change uh, scientists and all of their predictions also coming out conservative, even though they were being dismissed. That's a frightening state when what is viewed as extreme is accurate and the more mainstream message that is getting to most people is one that is very inaccurate, misleading, leaving the public unprepared for who knows what, maybe even a pandemic. Are we not in climate change denial, but many kinds of denial? And how sustainable is this denialism, even when it comes to American innocence and exceptionalism? How sustainable is all of the denialisms that we seem to be mired in, Malcolm? 
pretty pretty deep it seems like uh i mean look we're in this pandemic crisis right now we're under lockdown life has completely transformed for most of us and yet we keep going right society goes on day to day the are the things that underpinned the society previous to this disaster continue to underpin it the the dynamics continue to go on our social systems continue to function at least for now um and they don't really show any signs of despite all of their signs of like incompetence and letting people down their grip on power hasn't hasn't loosened any um so it's hard to think if we think about that as a sort of a, a metaphor for climate change right or even as a if you want to get really ecological about it as a symptom of climate change, as, a, as, a, as part and parcel of climate change, if we think about climate change as more than just carbon emissions, it's entirely possible. It seems probable that these disasters will continue to accumulate, will continue to affect our society at larger and larger scales. And we will maintain that denialism. If denialism means the inability to address problems at the scale at which they require addressing, then, then we'll, we'll maintain denialism all the way through. There's a, a Jim Jarmusch's uh, climate change zombie movie, The Dead Don't Die. I don't know if you've seen it, but it's really good. And one of the things it really gets at is people's sort of blaséness, even as they're being, you know, attacked and killed by zombies they're like oh shit looks like it's zombies i uh, should have seen that coming with the poles or whatever you know i guess we're going to be eaten by zombies now what you going to do about it and that's sort of how it's not like there's a, a switch that flips and you're like oh my god we got to do something it's like you can just be eaten by zombies and it definitely feels like that's what's happening to us right now the Dead Don't Die by Jim Jarmusch. I'll check that out. Uh, you write, uh, what justifications, uh, when justifications were in place and the calls came down, mayors and police in all jurisdictions were willing and often eager to deploy chemical weapons when, during protests in their city centers to disperse decidedly nonviolent assemblies during Occupy. Documents obtained by the Partnership for Civil Justice Fund showed that the DHS and the FBI had mobilized the full breadth of the counter-terror infrastructure to monitor and hiding behind local authorities dismantle the Occupy movement. I wanted to read that quote because of what you were just saying about uh, the grip that the government has on power. Uh, law enforcement is working to undermine. Police are stopping lawful dissent. In your opinion, when it comes to the reaction by law enforcement, how illegal has dissent become in the United States? Well, it depends what level of dissent you're talking about. But if you're talking about, a, so again, one that's not denialist, one that addresses the problem at the scale at which it exists, they really, they, you know, a comparison I like to make is you look at the Hong Kong protests where, you know, there were, there were Molotovs and street battles and all of society was in the grip of this sort of like civil insurrection. The military didn't get called out. There were not tanks on the streets. Like that's not how it got solved. It was still a police response. In the United States, when things went off in Ferguson and, or Baltimore, you saw a military response almost immediately. And so, again, when we talk about like China as authoritarian or whatever, it's, this is not to say that China is not authoritarian, but it's not uh, you know, noticeably more authoritarian than the United States in this particular way, which is that 
we are we are ready and eager to call in the military to put down any sort of uprising that happens in any of our cities, no matter who the local administrators are. Uh, and if that was clear during Occupy, it was clear during the Dakota Pipeline protest, and it was most clear, I think, during Black Lives Matter. And to understand America as sort of exceptionally hostile to those kind of uprisings, to resistance from its population, is something we have to really really get our, wrap our minds around on the left, that it's not, uh, we're not just another country in that way. We are, we're really ahead of the pack. You also mentioned this idea of violence and how nonviolent acts can be reacted to by the public as being far more violent than actually violent acts can be. You write a confederation devoted to, say, disrupting of, of resistance or protesters, to, say, disrupting the Department of Homeland Security and halting the enforcement of immigration laws is guaranteed to be treated like a terrorist group, even though its purpose and methods would have nothing to do with terrorism. It's the conceptual violence more than any threat to the safety of its personnel that DHS would find unacceptable. Both the general idea of people organizing to resist the law and the specific resistance to the government's ethnic cleansing program. How easily is the security state frightened, and what does that say about the security state when it can be frightened easier than we think? Well, uh, they're sort of ahead of us in some ways in terms of thinking about threats, which is bad, uh, but at least should show us something. So uh, one example is the other day I was walking by the Philly office of ICE, of Immigration and Customs Enforcement, and they had barricaded the office, basically the same way they do whenever we've protested. I've been to protest there a number of times, and they place barricades around the entrance, around two of the entrances to the building. And even though there wasn't, I don't think anyone was like working there even, and there weren't any protests scheduled, certainly, they had just barricaded it because they know because they know that you know they're in su they're operating in such bad faith they're so they are enemies of the people and they know themselves to be enemies of the people that they always have to be prepared to fight with the people and they are because they understand themselves that way and we need to understand themselves that way as well in your article again commune mag uh, what the covid-19 relief bill offers is a little survival as a treat it's time for a counterproposal. You write, if there's one thing most Marxists know about the Black Death, it's that it raised wages. The pestilence that ravaged Europe's population also significantly reduced its labor supply, which forced urban employers to increase pay and rural lords to lower rent. It is a textbook example in economics of supply and demand. The goal of a strong relief program is obviously the opposite, i.e. to keep people alive, but the impact for employers is theoretically similar to mass worker death. A reduced supply of labor, not in the absolute in this case, but relative to current prevailing conditions and wages. So why can't capital just suck it up and pay some raises? They've successfully repressed wage growth for decades. Couldn't they take a small loss now under these exceptional circumstances? And you add, you don't think so. So what impact, if any, do you think a general strike like the one planned for May Day can have on worker wages and conditions? Uh, I don't know. It's, it's going to be interesting. I'm not sure how effective the 
tactic of withdrawing labor generally is going to be at this moment, uh, unless the White House and state governments are really determined to make everyone go back to work. I think a mass refusal to go back to work would be awesome. Uh, I think workplace struggles throughout the, the epidemic have been effective. People have gotten, I think, at least real proximate or short-term wage increases that they wouldn't have seen in other circumstances. But the, the White House is also pretty openly pursuing a policy or is openly considering policies designed to drive down wages in the wake of the pandemic, right? This is, uh, and we've also seen people's wages get cut as a result. We've seen these furloughs. So I think if I, if I have to guess how this is going to be used, that it's going to be furthering this sort of attack on the wage and that if we're going to put together real resistance to what's happening, it's not going to be around workplaces or even the employment uh, relation necessarily. It's going to be at the, the social level. Why do you see the one-time $1,200 payment as nothing but a bailout for landlords? Why do you think the landlords will be the ones who are benefiting more from this than the tenants are? I think it creates a situation in which the landlords and other people who are owed money, other lenders, know that there's people are going to have cash in their pockets. And so they won't be able to make the excuse that, oh, I don't have it. You can't take what I don't have. Well, the government is saying, here, we're putting it in your pocket. And they're telling everybody, you know, just so you know, they've got $1,200. And we've already seen banks who are supposed to be administering these programs taking that money for debts supposedly owed or fees or whatever. So it's not even, it's not even making its way all the way to people. And that's, we've seen this happening and it's barely even started. So I think, I think it was a pretty solid one. And, you know, as you point out in your writing, what it's what at least what I get out of it is we have created an economy that can grow a system where people can profit and grow wealthy from a global pandemic that causes massive death and unemployment while people are scrambling for toilet paper, medical face masks. Uh, now a fear of meat shortages this summer. We've made an economy that can actually continue only somewhat and temporarily disrupted by all that carnage. So which is more of a public health crisis, the virus or an economy that can profit from the virus? Well, I think they're, they're one and the same, right? If we, if we were addressing this virus without concern for capital accumulation, response would be totally different. It would, it would look a lot more like other countries do where we have public quarantine set up and we offer people rooms in which to quarantine themselves with resources and care which is something I talk about in the article. Uh, but it would also look just like completely different in terms of how we all spend our days. Um, if anything, it would look more like the sort of mutual aid projects people are building in their own time, I think, because that's how people want to spend their time, that is helping others in the situation rather than you know, producing exchange value. And you're right, we do care. That's a thing that, you know, we all care very much. You're right, we care a lot. We care all day, every day. Some of us have already died of it, and more will tomorrow. We care. Let that help define us and them, and let us take care of us, and let that, and then let us take care of them. 
To what extent do you believe that defines our political divide today, those who care and those who simply do not? Uh, it's, it's, a, it's an exaggeration. It's a rhetorical exaggeration. that have to do with the, the name of the bill, which is the CARES Act. I don't think our, our political divide is defined by voluntarism in quite that way. Uh, but I think it's definitely something we're seeing now, and it's a, something we can motivate rhetorically, is that people want to spend their time caring for others in this sort of disaster. They want to care for the people they love, and they want to care for people they don't know even. They want to care for people who need help. And it's our political system and our social system and our economic system that stands in the way of people doing that. It does not facilitate uh, our desire to help one another, which is what theoretically it's supposed to be doing. Instead, it obstructs. It makes it more difficult for us to, to do those things we want to do. Uh, if that's the revelation that we can come out of this with or uh, that we can move forward with, then I, I'm sort of optimistic, I guess, about its impact on our political consciousness. And I, I just want you, again, just uh, explain to me just a little bit more. And why do you believe that if the United States actually had the caring government it had, actually started employing caring policies, why do you think the American House of Cards would come crashing down? Because, again, the place that firms have been investing in is driving down their cost of labor. That's where they've been expanding productivity. They've been expanding productivity not by expanding production, by expanding output, but by driving the cost of labor down. And what that does, the way, one of the ways they've been able to do that in America in, specific, in particular is that there is not care provided by the state, by society in general to people just for being alive. And so we are, we are more desperate than other people are, than other workers are in other countries to sell our labor. And firms have benefited from that directly and that is, they've used that as a source of growth. So if the government steps in and says, you know, we're just going to we're going to make sure everyone has everything they need to get through this, no matter who you are, no matter what you're doing. Well, the people who are frontline grocery workers who are risking their lives for twelve dollars an hour are going to quit. They're not going to go to work for that twelve dollars an hour unless they absolutely need to. Who's going to risk their lives for anything for twelve dollars an hour for any other reason than that they have to? Nobody. Absolutely nobody. So. And at the point where you can't get those essential workers to show up and work for those low wages, then capital has to renegotiate a whole new bargain with labor at a time when capital's in crisis, and they can't afford to do that. So I think they're going to maintain that laser focus on the wage throughout this crisis, and they have. If you look at statements from people like Art Laffer, they maintain this focus, tight focus on the wage, and I think we need to do that as well. Just a couple more questions for you, Malcolm. You write at the time it was written and published almost any piece in this collection of essays that you have, uh, just published in February, could have been described as pessimistic. And yet, when I look back at them, the big errors I find are in the other direction. I thought we had enough time and clearance to make or to keep fascists marginalized and out of the mainstream. I thought Hillary Clinton was going to be elected president. I figured that things were going to get worse, but I couldn't imagine it'd be at this pace. Shit has gotten much more fucked up and bullshit since I started writing professionally, and it was already so fucked up and bullshit then. 
is the lesson then we can never underestimate how much shit will get more fucked up and bullshit to accurately predict our future do we have to figure it will be far more fucked up than we can imagine uh not always i think there's a there's a kind of pessimism you can devolve into where you can overwhelm yourself with how bad things are i don't think that's productive either right we need the possibility of hope. We need a vision of how things could go otherwise. But in terms of our our baseline assumptions that things are going to stay the same and they can't get that much worse, I think that that assumption has been totally shattered. Because if you if you showed the world as it exists to you know ourselves five years ago, ten years ago, fifteen years ago, twenty years ago. 25 years ago, we wouldn't believe it. We would say, no, 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 we would have, you know, we would have revolted way before that. We would never have let, let things get that far. Uh, but here we are, and we are in sort of that, like, frog in the, the warming pot situation, pretty literally with the global warming. Um, so it's not that we need to err on one side or the other. It's that we need to be pretty rigorous in our analysis of the situation. We have been speaking with Malcolm Harris. He is author of Shit is Fucked Up and Bullshit History Since the End of History. You can uh, find, you can follow Malcolm on Twitter at Big Mean Internet, Big Mean Internet. And you can find our conversation with him back in December 2017. We talked to him about his then just published book, Kids These Days, Human Capital and the Making of Millennials, at our website, thisishell.com. And don't forget to check out Malcolm's writing. It really is fascinating, especially when he talks about the crisis of demand. In his article at Commune Mag, what the COVID-19 relief bill offers is a little survival as a treat. It's, a it's time for a counter-proposal. One last question for you, Malcolm, and as we do with all of our guests, our final question is the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. You point out how this economy, how American capitalism, how neoliberalism, how late capitalism, whatever you want to call that, is very sustainable and can profit from disasters that take tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of lives. Venture capitalists, elected officials even, billionaires are all cashing in on the pandemic, proving capitalism can continue and will profit from doom. So for the sake of argument, let's say I'm a horrible person and I don't care how I get rich as long as I get mine, get away from all you freaks, arm myself to the teeth to protect my, me and mine. Malcolm, how can the virus make me rich? Oh, gosh. Uh... Well, if you're an employer of labor, depending on what kind of employer of labor, I think you're going to be in a position to renegotiate that wage. And depending on how your workers are organized, you might be able to push, continue to push that wage down. And so it's really just the same strategy that they've, they've been pushing. Uh, once we understand it, we can see how they're going to keep advancing it the way they are now. So, yeah, I'm not shy about uh, sharing that. They, they know that. I don't need me to tell them that they need to push their labor costs down. Well, on that happy note, Malcolm, it's really a pleasure to have you back on the show. Count on us bugging you in the future. You're writing at Commune Mag, not only all of your uh, essays over the last 10 years. It's just exceptional. Thank you so much for being back on our show. And thanks for having me again, Chuck. All right, take care. You've been listening to a This Is Hell interview. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. 
So I want to formally apologize to Will Ippen, who will be editing out all of the profanities from that last interview. I remember that we said the entire name of the book because we knew that we were not being broadcast over the air on WNUR. And at that point in time, we weren't being broadcast over the air, I don't think, on WLPN, on Lumpen Radio either. or And on Radio Free Moscow, we just didn't share that interview because of all the pro- uh, profanities on it. So we didn't think it was a problem with swearing as much as we were. I, read, I wrote down a few, but it's going to be like Beat Saber. He's going to be trying to smash all these cuss words as they come at him. He's, he's going to have to listen to it. He's going to have to use Descript probably. But oh, then, that's smart. That's a great use of Descript. But then does... Descript spell those words correctly? I guess they do. It's pretty good. I'll bet it does. I bet it does, too. Live from lands stolen from the Potawatomi people, this is hell. If what you just heard from Malcolm Harris about how things sucked before the pandemic and that no normal, that's not the kind of normal any of us really want to return to, or it shouldn't be. Show your support by becoming a subscriber to our weekly bonus Patreon podcast, which happens at 10 a.m. on Thursday and is podcast shortly after at patreon.com slash thisishell. Or you can show your support for completely listener-supported This Is Hell by visiting thisishell.com and clicking on support. This week on Patreon, it's all about actions and consequences. Not that under the... Uh, unquestioning religious faith of hyper-individualism and conspicuous consumption, actions actually have consequences. We've pretty disconnected. We've disconnected the two pretty well. If actions had consequences, I mean, we'd all stop driving vehicles that rely on fossil fuel consumption because we would recognize that it was destroying the planet that we happen to live on where we keep all of our stuff. If we recognize the consequences of our actions, we would all, instead of being stuck in traffic jams by ourselves alone in our car surrounded by carbon monoxide surrounded by other people alone in their cars bored out of our skulls just sitting there rather than that we would rely on clean fast efficient mass transit avoiding congestion maybe instead of being engaged in dangerous driving we could be enjoying a book or a movie or listening to music or taking a nap or dare I say, striking up a conversation with a complete stranger, which is something that is not liked by neoliberalism. That is not what the geniuses behind neoliberalism wanted. They didn't want us talking to complete strangers. They didn't want us talking to each other. They don't want us to be in this together. They want us all to be alone because in that loneliness, in that belief that there's nothing that can be done to improve our lives, we're easier to exploit. But actions, in fact, do have consequences, and what we do and what we do that we insist is innocent can be very real crimes against others, against the planet, against people who we may have never met or ever see, but who nonetheless suffer greatly from what we've done. Also on Patreon, we will be playing an interview from 15 years ago today, five years after the beginning of the war on Iraq, when we spoke with Gary Brecker the war nerd himself, about Gary's first book, aptly named War Nerd, which was set to come out a couple months later. Gary had just posted the article, Who Won Iraq's Quote-Unquote Decisive Battle at Exile? And guess what? It wasn't a decisive battle, even though the United States and the Bush administration was saying that we had won that battle, we had not, and it was not decisive. 
in any way. We also have two new features for Patreon subscribers. First, we posted a new poll that lists possible upcoming guests on the show and asked Patreon patrons who they want uh, to hear on the show most. We will then do our best to get those potential guests with the most endorsements from you or from our Patreon patrons on the show. And we're getting a lot of people reacting already. Second, you can now ask me a question from hell. Patreon subscribers can leave a question from hell for me. And following the classic interview we play every week during our Patreon podcast. After that, that day's producer will select one of your suggestions and pose that question from hell to me. And I promise not to read any of your suggestions. So the question from hell each and every week on Patreon will be a complete surprise to me. And I will have to extemporaneously, that's right, I said extemporaneously, respond. But the only way you can hear and do all of that is by becoming a subscriber to This Is Hell on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. If you do become a subscriber at This Is Hell on Patreon, not only do you get a special code word giving you a discount on all of our merchandise that you can find right now at thisishell.com when you click on support, but you also get instant access to over five years of Patreon podcasts with each and every one featuring a monologue by me in a classic interview that currently is not available anywhere else online. And if you enjoyed This Is Hell, The Lost Pandemic Tapes Volume 2 this week, and go back to listen to some of those monologues at the beginning of the pandemic, people were freaking out. People including me. That's patreon.com slash this is hell. And if you want to contribute to the sustainability of this is hell, if you would like to continue hearing the show for free on a regular or daily basis, please show your support at this is hell. Dot com. We also want to make all 26 years of the show available to everyone, again, for free, like all of our shows are right now, except for the Patreon podcast. Remember, none of us here on This Is Hell earn anything from the show other than what we get from you. You may think, well, they're now on four radio stations as well as an internet radio outlet in the UK, so they must be raking it in. We are definitely not. We give this show to all of our affiliates for free, for nothing. And the only way we can and the only way we want to do that is by being completely 100% listener-supported. We do not, nor will we ever take any money from any commercial interests, nor will we ever accept any corporate grant or foundation money because we do not want to be beholden to any entity or person other than you, the listening audience. So show your support, show your appreciation by becoming a Patreon patron at patreon.com slash thisishell or just go to thisishell.com and click on support. Dan, please remind us what is this week's question from hell and let's hear the rest of our listeners' answers. This week's question from hell was, what kind of shock and awe tactics do you employ to get what you want? We have some new answers at Twitter where Ahmad S. says, shouting my name out loud in a mall. Ahmad! <laughs> I'm just relating Ahmad's lived experience there. That is Ahmad speaking, not Dan Hill, the white guy. Uh, fake AF says masturbating in public. I'm starting to think that that's fake AF's uh, mom answer. Is your this, mom? Uh, this has come up before. Yeah, yeah, this I is think a recurring so. Recurring theme. So people who say your mom is the answer, I think. Uh, 
is treating us like a therapist. Yes, he just wants exactly. to get it off his chest. So to speak. I'm assuming it's a him. Yes. All right, we got uh, some over at Patreon as well, where little drippy dudes, as I like to call them, <laughs> says, I only stock my lord at home. So friends willingly bring their own booze when we hang out. Yeah, very clever shock and awe tactic. Yeah, because it's nasty. It is nasty. Paul F. says, just give him the old lazy eye. Works every time. That is a deep cut for millennials. He provides a clip to uh, Fievel Goes West, this cartoon where Jimmy Stewart's playing a cartoon cowboy saying just that. So I started watching that clip. Yeah, yeah. It's over four minutes long. It's long. I, I guess... can't put up with more than two minutes of Fievel, so you... I couldn't get to the point where Jimmy Stewart gives him the it's lazy Jimmy eye. Stewart's last role. He's dead in the ground by the time that came out. No kidding. That was his swan song, was being a cowboy dog. And... <laughs> Teaching a mouse how to slay men in a montage. Dom DeLuise is in the clip. And, and uh, giving people the lazy eye. Giving the old lazy so eye. So we don't know what kind of eye condition he had at the time. That's true. I bet he was falling apart. Yeah. That's it. There's none more. (laughs) All right. So the answers I liked the most were uh, I did like Riley J saying revealing Quato to this week's question from hell. What the hell is this week's question from hell again? I got to look it up. What kind of shock and awe tactics do you employ to get what you want? (laughs) Revealing Quato from Riley J. That would work. Uh, (laughs) Drippy DDs, I guess. Only stock Malort at home so friends willingly bring their own booze when we hang out. Ahmad sh- saying, shouting my name out loud in a mall. Ahmad, which is uh, hilarious. Uh, David I saying, the charm offensive or offensive charm. SLS saying, what on earth makes you think I get what I want? This is hell. Kim G saying, Again, to this week's question from hell, what kind of shock and awe tactics do you employ to get what you want? Cream pies and cappuccino monkey. Still don't know what that means. <laughs> Tom W. saying mutual aid. Uh, Nick Arno- uh, Nick A. saying the best kind. <sighs> Any of these really stick out to you? Because there's one from Discord from by Out Of saying my passion for oversharing. Is there any of these that really stick oh, out I to you? I didn't see that one in Discord. I mean, we've got to give it to Quato. That's pretty funny. That is a really Unless good one. that person wins all the time, I don't know. Uh, let's see. Does No, Riley does not win all the time. Yeah, Riley, Riley, you are the winner of this week's question from hell. For responding to this week's question from hell, what kind of shock and awe tactics do you employ to get what you want? Revealing Quato. And if you want to know what that's a reference to, first of all, it's a reference to the Arnold Schwarzenegger movie uh, Total Recall. But it's also a reference to last week's Patreon monologue. So if you want to hear how I am considering revealing Quato, you can go back and listen to, listen to last week's Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash this is hell. So congratulations, Riley. Just send us your mailing address and we'll put whatever piece of this is hell merchandise you choose in the mail to you post haste. So my answer to this week's question from hell, what kind of shock and awe tactics do you employ to get what you want? I try not to employ shock and awe tactics because whenever I do, they always blow up in my face with someone saying disappointingly, oh, Chuck, no, you didn't. And me begging for forgiveness while being completely filled with shame and humiliation, feeling like I'm an inch tall. So a lot like how the shock and awe in the war on Iraq turned out, except the apologizing part. Apologizing is un-American, as it suggests our actions do have consequences. Again, I'll be talking about that on Patreon this week.
Thanks to everyone who sent in an answer to this week's question from hell. Dan, who will be joining us as our first guest next week. We have fresh off the wire, Middle East deputy editor at the New York Line, at the New Lines magazine, Rasha El-Akidi, posted the article, Living and Reliving the U.S. Invasion of Iraq. Two decades on, I can recall almost every detail of the American occupation and the years that followed. And then on Tuesday, who's our guest? We'll have Catherine Yon Ebright, uh, who serves as counsel with the Brennan Center's Liberty and National Security Program, who authored the study Secret War, in which Catherine explains how security cooperation programs have led U.S. forces into unauthorized hostilities alongside foreign partners. Congress must curb <laughs> this dangerous and undemocratic par- practice. Yeah, they're not going to do that. Well, I asked them to nicely <laughs> on my little radio show. <laughs> that was nice of you. Yeah. And we'll also have the return of Jeff Torchin, the moment of truth, and we will have rotten history from Ronaldo Magaldi. So thanks to Jeff and Ronaldo, uh, kind of, uh, you know, preemptive thanks to both. And thank you to this week's producers, Will Ippen and Dan Hill. Thanks to Ronaldo Magaldi for this week in rotten history. Thanks to Sebastian Vuper for another Past Inside the President. Sebastian will be back next week as well. And thanks to Richard Norwood, Alexander Jerry, Theron Humiston. Just because. Talk to you tomorrow, Thursday, on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell, when I will actually consider the the consequences of our actions, and you'll hear an interview from 15 years ago with the war nerd. Also, please join us for This Is Hell Office Hours, our meet and greet that's really a drink and think that's happening this evening, Wednesday evening, from 6 p.m. to 10 p.m. at Carrie's Lounge in Chicago's West Ridge neighborhood at 2251 West Devon Avenue. We're having a little bit of a producer's meeting from 6 to maybe 6.30, something like that. So we might get started a little bit later with uh, office hours, but Dan will be here. He'll be able, you'll be able to meet Dan for the first time. He'll be joining us during office hours. As will will as will will Ippen, so people can meet our two newest producers here on the show. Alex and I will also be here, as well as a cast of thousands. There's only one way to get over all of the problems that we've introduced to you on this week's set of shows. That's by sitting down in the lotus position, turning your palms towards the sky, focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead, and saying the simple words: "Everybody's stupid." My demon is on my butt. No. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>